Last week we looked at, we, we started a new series last week called Encountering the Messiah. Uh, and last week we looked at an encounter with the Messiah, with Jesus, uh, with a religious man named Nicodemus wanting to know who Jesus was. Uh, but what, what he got was a lesson. He comes wanting to know who Jesus was and what he got was a lesson on the true nature of salvation. That salvation wasn't just a religious set of tasks, but was an entirely new way of life. A radical change so big that the only thing you could call it is that you were born again. Now, we don't know how Nicodemus responded. We're not told how he responded to this lesson. Did he embrace Jesus? Did he receive the new birth? Or did he walk away as confused as he sounded in the conversation? Well, this week... We look at another encounter, uh, but we know exactly how the man responds. He responds by walking away from Jesus, whom he came to, whom he initiated, who he started this encounter, but his expectations uh, fell flat in his face. And he walked away sad, and not just sad, but grieving, because Jesus wasn't what he expected him to be. Many of us know people and have encountered people, uh, have encountered the Messiah, only uh, to, to end up walking away from him. Many of us have walked away from him again and again until we came, or we know people who have encountered the Messiah only to walk away. So what I want to do this morning is examine four reasons why this man, this rich man, and by extension, others and us, would experience an encounter with, the, with Jesus, an encounter with the Messiah, only to end up walking away. Why is it? What would cause someone to encounter the Messiah, the Jesus, the Savior, and walk away from him. I think knowing the answer to why people would do that will speak to real issues that people have with Jesus. Is it to cut past trivial things, to cut past the camouflage that people put up and get to the heart of the issues. But it will also help us to see the things that in our own hearts, in our own hearts, in our own lives that hold us back sometimes from giving our whole entire lives to Jesus. Or as we say around here, by making Jesus essential in all of our lives. And so, four things, four reasons the rich young ruler walks away from Jesus. And therefore, four reasons that may also apply to others and to ourselves. So let's read together in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he writes the very words of God. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do uh, to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing I want us to see this morning is, and why does this man walk away from Jesus sad? Why does he uh, encounter Jesus, encounter the Messiah, and walk away? Well, he walks away because he encountered 
the real Jesus. He walks away because he encountered the real Jesus. This rich man understood that he lacks something, right? He goes to Jesus and he gets it. He understands that there is something lacking in him, right? There's something missing. And so he seeks Jesus out. He approaches Jesus. He initiates this encounter looking for that one thing that he lacks and so that he can finally arrive. Right, so he can finally get there. So he can finally be made right with God and have peace and joy. And so he asks the question, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? What good deed, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, in his kindness, obliges. And he tells him something that he can do. Now, as we're going to see later, this one thing that Jesus tells him to do would, would not actually save him. It is merely exposing the real problem. But Jesus does give him something to do. He says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Go sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And the rich man hears these words and he stands stunned. He came to Jesus excited. He came to Jesus ready to take the final step. He, well, whatever he needed. But what Jesus asked of him was simply too much. It was too big of an ask. You see, he had some idea in his mind about what he was lacking. And he was even humble enough. He was humble enough to admit that there was something he needed. He was humble enough to admit, hey, I've, I've got a lot going for me. I've done a lot of the right things, but I know I probably need something else. And so he's humble enough to admit he needs something more. But he never imagined that Jesus would ask so much of him. He never imagined that Jesus would ask this of him. And that's the problem. We come to Jesus ready to give uh, some of our life to him. But he doesn't demand some of our lives. He demands all of them. When you encounter the real Jesus, he doesn't ask for some of you. He demands all of you. When you encounter the real Jesus, he doesn't ask for some of you. He asks he demands all of you, your whole life. One of our modern problems with, with people who encounter the real Jesus is it doesn't align with the Jesus they imagined him to be. The Jesus they invented in their own mind. You have heard people say all the time, you know, I just can't believe in a God who would judge people and send them to hell. I can't believe in a God who would be against people who love someone just because they're the same gender. I can't believe in a God who would allow bad things to happen to good people. I can't believe in a God if he does A, B, or C because it doesn't fit into the mold that I have created for my life and my values. They can't give their life to the real Jesus because he asks of them things they are not willing to give up. Whether it be beliefs or riches or something else. I won't give up what I think is, uh, is moral for, for God's definition of morality. I'm not going to give up my morals for God's definition of morality. I won't give up my anger over this bad thing that happened. I won't give up my belief that God should love everyone and not judge people. I won't give up my lifestyle. I won't give up my freedom. I won't give up these things. They think instead God should change and conform to them. The rich man comes to Jesus because he is truly and genuinely wanting to follow him. And he wants some answers. He wanted to know what else he needed to do. But he was not ready to do it. He was not ready for the answer. He was not ready for the sacrifices he was going to have to make. He wasn't ready. 
to do it. And so he walks away sad because the cost of following Jesus was too high. The cost of following Jesus was too high. See, here's, here's what happens when you, when you encounter the Messiah, when you encounter the real Jesus. You can either bow in submission or you can go away offended. Those are your two options. You can bow in submission or you can go away offended. When you encounter the real Jesus and he blows up our expectations, he blows up the things that we expected and thought he was going to ask of us or do, we can either submit to him, bow and worship and submit to him as Lord, or we can go away angry, go away offended, go away sad. Let's be clear. The gospel is offensive. Right? The gospel is offensive to those who do not yet believe. Right? And, and sometimes in our effort to reach people, because we love people and we want to reach them, sometimes churches are tempted to, to water down the truth to reach people. But in watering down the truth to reach people, we've lost the very power to save them. Right? So we can't do that. Right? The idea... Like the gospel is offensive, like the idea that, that you're not good enough. The idea that you need forgiveness because you are a rebel against God. The idea that you deserve the wrath and justice of God for your sin. The idea that you need a radical transformation to be born again as we talked about last week. The idea that God is not uh, willing to take half of you or part of you but all of you. Demands all of your complete surrender. Those ideas are offensive to those who are lost. Those are offensive to the world. The cross is foolishness and offensive to the world. If you understand the real Jesus, you have two options. Walk away or surrender. But you cannot be indifferent. You have two options. You can walk away from Jesus or you can surrender to Jesus. But what you can't be is indifferent. You see, to those people who say, you know, Christianity is it's sweet. You know, it's, it's, it's sweet. You know, it's good for the kids. It's good for the kids. I say, yeah, you know, Christianity's fine. You know, it's not for me, but, you know, it's fine. It's good. Those people do not understand Christianity. Those people do not understand the gospel and who Jesus is. When you understand the real Jesus, indifference isn't an option. Surrender or retreat are the only options. The rich young ruler learned that Jesus demands more of us than he ever expected. But what he failed to learn, and what we're going to see by the end, is that not, not only does uh, he expect more of us, but he offers more than we ever dared hope. So the second thing I want us to see is he walks away because Jesus smashed his religious views. He walks away because Jesus smashed his religious views. He blows up his religious understanding. Not only did this encounter with the Messiah ask too much of the rich young ruler, but he blows up what he thinks about religion and what it means to be good and what it means to be right with God. He makes an assumption about Christianity that is still common today. He thinks that Christianity or following Jesus is merely something you do. That it's something you do. Or it is something that I can add to my life. Right? It's an, it's an add-on. Right? He was looking for an action or a sign-up form to join the team. He asked the question, what do I still lack? He wanted a checklist. Now, some of you type, person a, type a personalities in here, you like checklists, right? You love a checklist. You like the idea that God could give you a list of things to do because once you do them, you're done, 
Right? You can rest. You check that off your list. But if you understand, if Jesus gave you a checklist, once you finished it, there would be nothing else he could ask of you. If God gave you a checklist, once you finished the checklist, he could demand no more of you. But since he saves us by grace and grace alone, there is no limit to what he could ask of you. See, Christianity is not a checklist. It is not a, thing, a, a list of things to do. It is not a team to join. It is not an upgrade or an add-on to your already jam-packed life. Instead, like we learned last week, Christianity is a new birth. Christianity explodes your life. It shatters it to pieces and builds a new one in its place. But still, this rich young ruler wants to know, what the only thing he lacks is. He wants to know what that thing is. He sees himself as a religious man, a good man. He's done pretty much everything right in his life, at least he thinks he has. And not only is he this good, moral, upstanding, right, religious man, he's humble too. Like he's not like the Pharisees who think they got it all together and know they do or feel like they know they do. He's humble. He's like, you know, I need some help. There's something I still lack. Show me what that is. He's coming to learn at the feet of Jesus. And he wants Jesus to point out to him, What's this one thing he's missing? But what Jesus does is brilliant. Jesus first, he begins to list some of the commandments. He says, do the commandments and you'll have life. And he's like, which ones? And so he begins to list some of them, right? Don't murder, don't lie, don't commit adultery, love your neighbor. And the rich man's like, great, I've done those. I've kept all of those commandments. Great, what else? And Jesus, knowing this man's heart, that he thinks he's kept these commands. And Jesus knows he hasn't, but he, but he thinks he has. And so Jesus is saying, okay, let's test that theory, buddy. Let's test the theory that you think you've kept these commands. And let's just start with the first commandment. You know the first commandment in the Ten Commandments that says, you shall have no other gods before me. And so he tells him, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Because if God is first in your life, if God is first and there's nothing else, if God is first, then everything else is a trinket. Everything else is trivial. If God is first, then losing anything else, it might be sad, it might hurt a little bit, but you'll do it and you'll be okay because you have God. And he's saying, I, the true God, ask you to put me first. Obey my command. Sell everything. Put me as your God before everything else. So how are you doing, rich guy? How are you doing with the first commandment? He walks away sad. He walks away sad. Jesus is exposing his true God. Jesus is exposing his true Savior. That his true God, his true Savior wasn't Jesus. It wasn't Yahweh. His true God, his true Savior was money. You see, he was breaking the first commandment and had no idea. And had no idea. Jesus wasn't actually coming after his money. It's not what he was doing. He was coming after his heart. Jesus wasn't coming after his pocketbook. He had to go through his pocketbook to get to his heart. He was showing him, you think you're good. You think you're righteous. You think you're worthy of me, but just need a little bit of something. But I'm going to show you in one example, in one commandment of how you fall completely short. And you've missed how you get to me. The rich man's problem wasn't that he needed just a little bit more goodness, just a little bit more morality, just a little bit of fixer-upper. His problem was he was unable to admit that he wasn't actually good at all. That was his problem. He, he was blind to his own inadequacies and that he needed mercy. You see, the issue here isn't money. 
Jesus never calls anyone else in the gospel accounts to go and sell everything that they have. The issue here is a false sense of holiness, a false sense of morality, a false sense of goodness, a, a, a false sense of moral superiority, a false sense of just how good he thinks he is. And Jesus is clear with him. He says, there is no one good but God. Why do you ask me what is good? There's no one good but God. The rich man didn't need just one more thing to do. He didn't need just a little bit more goodness. He was blind to how bad he actually was and how he needed more than an add-on. He needed more than just to join the team. He needed a whole life transformation from the inside out. But he walked away because Jesus asked for more than he was willing to give. He walked away because he was blind and could not see his dead and broken heart and how he needed Jesus to give him a new one. He walked away because he thought he needed a little bit. And Jesus said, we got to change everything. And he said, no, it's too much. It's too much. And so when he met the real Jesus, he realized Jesus was asking more than he expected to be demanded of him. And Jesus blew up his religious understanding that he had any goodness worthy of heaven. And third, he walks away because Jesus got personal. He walks away because Jesus got personal. You know, sometimes you can get in a room with people, you can talk with people about spiritual things, you can talk with people about deep things, the deep things of God, but it's just academic, right? Like it's just up in the clouds. It's, it's theoretical. It's intellectual, right? We, we can talk about it, right? But we keep it up in the clouds, we keep it academic. And it's easy to talk about spiritual things like that, like because it makes no actual demands on my life, right? It's just up here. And that's one of the things that's really easy to do when you're in a small group, right? Like if you're in one of our D groups, it's really easy to get together and to talk about the book we're going through together right now and talk about the lies Satan wants us to believe if you're in a D group. That's what we're talking about. And it's easy to get in there and talk about these things and let them be academic, let them be theoretical, let them be up in the clouds. You know, these are things Christians should do or Christians shouldn't do. These are things that, yeah, you know, people should get better at. These are things, yeah, whatever. But they're abstract. What's hard is to bring them down from the clouds and say, no. This hits me. This hits me at home. And I've got to take this truth and I've got to change. Or I need to take this and apply it to you. Hey, man, do you see this in your life? That's what's hard. That's what gets personal. When we keep it up in the academic, up in the clouds, it's easy. We can talk about these things. But when it gets down to us, it becomes vulnerable and becomes hard. We can get defensive. So people will talk about their problems with Christianity, right? Like, why, you know, I, you know what, I, I can't really believe in Christianity, I can't believe in God because, you know, it's just too exclusive. Jesus is just too, too exclusive, not accepting enough. Or, you know, I just, I can't get on board with all the miracles, like all the supernatural, I'm just not sure about all of that. Or, or you know what, if, if, if God was real, I think he'd be more loving than he is. He wouldn't be sending people to hell or he wouldn't ask people to change their life. You know, and so people talk about these things, right? But... But it's academic, and what they're doing is they're, they're keeping the real issues away from their heart and, and distracting you with these other things, distracting themselves from these other things. But those are doctrines, right? Those are, those are big belief things. They have nothing to do with you and what you are going to do about Jesus. The, the rich young ruler is looking for what he's missing. And maybe it's some doctrine. Maybe it's some belief. Maybe whatever it is, he wants it to be a generic thing. He wants it to be something that everyone who comes to Jesus has to do. Just tell me this one thing I'm supposed to uh, agree to or submit to or, or hold to, and I'll do it. 
But Jesus, in this conversation, refuses to allow the conversation to stay up in the clouds. He refuses to allow it to stay academic. He makes it personal. He cuts through the noise. He cuts through the camouflage. He cuts through the excuses. He cuts through the abstract. And he goes straight to his heart. It's interesting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the gospel writers, uh, talk about this story. They all record this story. But Mark, in his gospel account, includes a detail the others don't. Mark says that when, after, this, after this kind of interaction, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he said, go sell everything and give it to the poor. Jesus looked at him and loved him. You see, Jesus wasn't there trying to score points. Jesus wasn't there trying to communicate to the, to the masses by using this guy as a teaching point. No. Jesus was talking to this guy one-on-one. Jesus was getting personal with this guy. Jesus wanted to help him. He wanted to save him. He wanted to restore him. And so he got personal by showing him what his real problem was. He told him the truth, right, which is hard to hear. It's hard to hear the truth sometimes. He told him the truth. He is showing him the monster that is destroying his heart, the cancer that is eating him alive from the inside, trying to destroy him. By asking him to sell everything, he is exposing what he believes his true God, his true Savior to be. The thing that he believed, the rich man believed, would would make him whole. He's exposing what he really deep down thought would bring him joy and happiness. And so it is loving for Jesus to point out this truth of this thing that is killing him and exposing his idol of money, his love of money, this God of money, this monster that is eating him from the inside. Jesus never asked anyone else to sell everything. So why does he do it here? Why doesn't he just say, you know what? Maybe we got to learn some moderation around uh, your spending habits. Maybe we got to learn some moderation around your love for money. Maybe we just got to like settle this down a little bit. Learn to control it a little bit. Learn to tame it a little bit. Why doesn't Jesus do that? Why does he go to such dramatic extreme measures and say you have to sell everything? Well, imagine the times in our lives when we have to confront someone we love who is an alcoholic and who is destroying their life with alcohol or someone who is a serial gambler addicted to gambling and is destroying their family by their gambling habits, what do you do? You don't go to them and you say, hey, maybe we can scale back the drinking a little bit. Maybe we can scale back the, the dice rolling a little bit. Maybe we can get this under control and instead of drinking every day, we go to, we go to four days. Maybe we, we, instead of gambling every day, we go to three days. You don't say, hey, let's try to moderate that. No, you go to them and you plead with them and you say, you've got to stop or you're going to die. Your liver is going to give out. You've got to stop or we're going to lose you. You go to them and you say, you've got to stop rolling the dice or hitting the slot machine because your family is not eating. And they're going to leave you to find food somewhere else because you're not providing for them because you're wasting their money. They're saying, you've got to stop completely. You've shown that you can't moderate this. You've shown that you can't control this. Instead, it is a monster destroying your life from the inside. It is a savior who has failed to save you. And so put it to death. That's what we would do. And that is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is having this sort of intervention with this man. It's the sort of confrontation that we would have with someone we love on alcohol. 
alcoholism, being, uh, getting drunk all the time. He intervenes and he's telling him, this money, this love of money will destroy your very soul. He wants him to see. He wants him to see the truth that deep down he believes that, this, that his wealth, his riches are going to bring him power and joy. But he wants him to see that it's a false savior that will only destroy him. Jesus isn't picking on money here. He is showing him that anything in your life that you think will bring you joy and power apart from God is an idol. Anything that you believe will satisfy the cravings of your soul, will finally make you arrive. Anything that you believe will do that apart from God is an idol, is a false savior. And it won't deliver you. It promises deliver you. It says, I'll be enough. I'll make you happy. And it never delivers. Instead, it destroys us. The monster of money, the idol of money will make you overwork. It will make you neglect your family. It will make you trample on people in order to get more. It will make you think if I can get more, people will stop pushing me around. If you, if you think if I can get more, I can finally buy the things that will make me joy. Or if I get more, I'll finally feel secure and safe. The reason so many celebrities and athletes and rich people find themselves sleeping around with everyone they can get their hands on or doing drugs or depressed and having to go to rehab is because they thought their money and their fame would bring them happiness, but instead it only exposed that the void in their heart was vastly bigger than they thought it was. And Jesus wants him to kill, to put to death this idol so that he can find true joy. The old Puritan pastor, John Owen, a couple hundred years ago, once wrote concerning our sin and our idols. He said, we must be killing sin or it will be killing you. Jesus wants him to kill his sin, to put it to death. And the only way to do that is to first expose it. To expose it. By telling him to sell everything and give it to the poor, he's exposing it. Because if he did it, if he said, wow, that's a big ask, wow, that's hard, but... Okay, and if he like, if he did it, he would be showing that he that it's not an idol, and that he's or that it was, and he put it to death. But by refusing, he's showing that for him, his greatest treasure isn't what Jesus has to offer. His greatest treasure is his pocketbook. Every one of us in this room, without fail, every single one of us in this room, have idols in our hearts. Have idols, that have false gods, false saviors, things that are promising us joy, promising us satisfaction, promising us the good life. That's what they're promising, right? Whatever vision you have of the good life, right, they're promising you that. It doesn't have to be money. It can be all kinds of things. So here, here's the question I want you to ask yourself right now. If you encountered Jesus, what could Jesus ask of you that you would find to be too much? What, if you encountered Jesus, what could he ask of you that you would find to be too big of an ask, too much of Jesus to ask of you? What could Jesus ask of you that you would say, man, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. For some of you, it would be if God asked you to be single your whole life and to give up your romantic dreams of marriage. You would say, man, I can't do it. For some of you, it would be if God asked me not to have kids to, to, to give up the family that I've dreamed of, uh, it would be too much. For some of you, it might be if God asked you to move to a foreign country to be a missionary into some impoverished nation, you would think, 
man, no, I don't, I don't think I could do that. That might be too much. For some of you, it might be if God asked you to forego your dream house, to forego uh, 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 your dream house in order to, to downsize so that you would have more money to give to some uh, cause for the sake of Christ. You're saying, ah, I'll give some money, but I don't know if I could, I could make my house smaller in order to take that money to, to do something with. What are your dreams? What is your vision of the good life? And what if God asked you to give them up for his sake? To take your dreams, to take the things you long for, your daydreams, the things you, you can't wait to do one day. What if God asked you to take those and to throw them away because he has a whole different plan for you? Whatever that thing is, that you would think it would be too much for God to ask me to give that thing up. That's your idol. That's your idol. That is the thing that you believe deep down in your heart will save you. And it's lying to you. It's lying to you. It is promising joy. It is promising deliverance. It is promising, you know, a deep breath of just, man, this is good. And it will never give it to you. And the problem is many of the things that we dream about, many of the things we want, they're not bad things. They're not bad things. They're things created by God to give us joy. The problem is we want them apart from God, and we think they're ultimate. And they become this cancer slowly eating away at us. I think the best way I've ever heard it said is if you have Jesus, but you, need, you like Jesus, you want Jesus, but Jesus plus something else, whatever that is, whatever that dream is, Jesus plus the big house, Jesus plus a, a, you know, a, a smoking hot wife and an awesome marriage, a smoking hot husband, awesome marriage, four kids, tire swing, red door, you know, Jesus plus whatever. In the end, you get nothing. Jesus plus something equals nothing. You don't get Jesus or you don't get the other thing, you get nothing. But if you say Jesus plus nothing else, I just need him, and I don't need anything else right now. I just want him, and I get him. He's my treasure. You get Jesus plus nothing, then in the end you get everything. In the end you get everything. All of a sudden, your marriage can bring you joy. Your kids can bring you joy. Your house can bring you joy because they're not ends in of themselves. They're gifts given to you by the great giver because they're not ultimate. Because if you lose your house, you'll be okay. If God calls you to downsize your house because he wants you to adopt a kid and you need the money from the downsizing and you adopt a kid, okay, I'll go do that, God. You can give up everything because you have him. And when you have him plus nothing else, you get everything. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Jesus is telling him, you've got to give me your dreams. You want to be happy? You want to find joy? You want to be satisfied? Give me your dreams. Surrender your dreams to me. Surrender your whole life to me. Make me the most important thing in your life. And then and only then. Can you have everything else? Only when I'm your joy, only when I'm your joy, will you be able to handle money rightly. Only when I'm your joy, will you be able to experience marriage the way I designed it to bring you ultimate joy and happiness. Only when I'm your joy, will you not destroy your children's lives because you want to be their best friends and be their buddies, and therefore you destroy them because they're your idol. Jesus makes this personal. He is saying, the one thing you lack isn't something you need to do. It's not something you need to believe. The one thing you are lacking is me. And the thing that is in the way of you receiving me is your money. He is saying, take me, have me, fill your life with me. But there is only room 
home for one savior in your heart. And so it's me or the money. So either get rid of your false savior and replace it with me. Or keep your false savior and there's no room for me. You see, he isn't saying until you give your whole self to me, you're not right with me. He's not, only, he's not just saying until you give your whole self to me, you're not right with me. He's saying we're not connected. But the replacement God in your heart is going to kill you and destroy your life. So remove it. Take me and live. But the rich man does not receive Jesus' warning. He does not hear his words, his pleading. Instead, he walks away. He walks away sad and grieving because deep down he believed that his money, his idol, was a better savior than Jesus ever could be. That's his problem. He can't, he can't receive Jesus because his money is in the way. Jesus was calling him to get rid of the money so that there was room to take Jesus. And in the end, you can have everything else thrown in. But you got to get rid of it first. The real Jesus asks more of us than we expect. He smashes our religious expectations and our visions of our own goodness. And he gets personal and he exposes our true problem to which he is the only solution. And finally, this rich man walks away because he didn't value treasure in heaven. He walks away because he didn't value treasure in heaven. Jesus tells him that if he sells everything, he's going to have treasure in heaven. It's not that he's buying his future treasure by selling everything, right? It's that if he makes Jesus his savior, he will get treasure in heaven. And the money is in the way of that, right? He's not buying the treasure in heaven. The money is simply in the way. In the same way that anything else could be in the way. He, so he has to get rid of the obstacle to get the future. But when the rich man walks away, he is showing that he, have, he values the immediate, the present, the moment, more than he values eternity. More than he values the future. What, what he can see, what he can touch, what gives him security right now, what gives him temporary happiness right now was more important to him than what he could have forever. And if we think about it, it's a pretty childish response. Like who would hold on to what he can for only a moment in exchange for what he could have had for eternity? Who would hold on to something for five minutes when you're offering something even better forever? Only a child doesn't give up his trinket of a, of a toy in exchange for tickets to Disney World because the tickets aren't shiny. They're digital. You can't even see them. They're on a phone somewhere, right? But, but he doesn't give up the toy because he wants instant gratification. No, I don't care about that. I want this. The Disney trip is in the future. I want join now. And the problem is we think our lives here are really long. Right, we do this. We think our lives here, the, the 60, 70, 80, 90 years, 100 years we get to live here, we think it's a really long time. But it's not. It's a blink of an eye. Guys, yesterday uh, I, I, had, I was thinking about my firstborn child in June is going to be 10 years old. She's been, she's been bragging about, I'm going to be 10 in June. She's been talking about it a lot. And we, we always tell her, no, you don't get, you, you're not, we're not going to let you have that birthday. We're not going to let you grow up. Because we want the control to be able to stop it. But how often do we talk about how, man, time flies. Man, they, they grow up before you know it. Man, God's life is short, man. They just, we, you turn around and they're graduating college, right? How often do we talk about that? We talk about that because life is short. Life is short. A hundred years of our life is nothing compared to how long we will actually live. And so let's not invest in the short term. Let's invest, let's not invest in what's passing away. 
what we can hold on to for a moment, let's instead invest in the long term. And what we can hold on to and what we can enjoy forever and ever 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 and ever. And then we've just started. Let's invest in that. And so when you look back on your childhood, right, when all of us look back in our childhood, we see the silly decisions we made, right? We see the mistakes we made, and now as an adult, you can look back on those and you go, man, I don't know why I ever did that. That was so dumb of me. I don't know why I did this or that. Right? We can look back now as a, as our, in our childhood and say, I don't know why I acted that way or did this or made that decision. But don't you know that one day on the other side of eternity, a billion years from now, we will look back on our life today. And think, how is it that I thought investing in that big house and those nice cars were so important? How is it that I thought if I could just have another vacation, I'd be happy? How is it that I thought, man, rugging, running myself self ragged from sport to sport to sport to sport to music camp to this to that to that would somehow fulfill me? Why is it that I cared so much about the present moment that I didn't think about all that God was, had in store for me? Jesus told a parable one time about a man who found a treasure in a field. And that when he found that treasure, he went and he sold everything that he had so that he could buy the field with the treasure in it. Why did the man do that? Why did the man go sell everything he had so he could buy a field that had some treasure in the middle of it? Because the treasure was more valuable than everything he owned and everything he had. It was more valuable than the things that were sentimental to him. It was more valuable than the things that he enjoyed, that he had, that he owned. It was more valuable than everything. The treasure in the parable was the kingdom of God. And Jesus' point was the same in that parable as it is with the rich man. There is no price too high. There is no price too high. There is nothing worth clenching our fists and holding onto so tightly to miss out on the treasure of getting Jesus and all that he has to offer. Whatever you got to get rid of to get Jesus, he's saying, is a no-brainer. For if getting rid of it... You get Jesus. It is a no-brainer to get rid of it. You say to me, Brent, how do you know? How do you know that knowing Jesus is worth everything? How do you know that knowing Jesus and getting into this kingdom is worth everything? How do you know the kingdom of heaven is worth everything, giving up everything for? How do you know? How do you know it's worth the price? We know it's worth, we know what it's worth because we know the price of admission. We know what it's worth because we know the price of admission. Because getting Jesus, getting into this kingdom isn't free. It costs everything. And it doesn't cost just you. It costs God. The price for admission for you is the very life of God himself. The very lifeblood of God himself. The price for admission is the blood of Jesus, the blood of God poured out for you on a torture cross. Jesus went to the cross and allowed himself to be tortured and executed to receive the wrath of God so that he could take religious failures, so that he could take morally bankrupt people, so that he could take no good failures like me and like you, and he can make us beautiful and radiant and give us the life he created us for, and so that we could find our ultimate treasure in him and in the world he is making. We can have treasure now, treasure in Christ. We can have treasure right now in knowing Christ and treasure to come as we go to rule and reign with Christ, to be free, to be whole in a world he's making with us forever. But the admission has been paid. The admission, the price has been paid. But there is only room for one Savior in your heart. And the question is, will you remove whatever is there now and give the whole thing to Jesus? 
Or is what's there now so important to you that you would trade an eternity in paradise to have your trinket now? Which one's more valuable? The answer is obvious. But are you willing to rip it out of your heart? To not let it just be academic up here in the clouds and, oh, yeah, the answer is obvious. Are you willing to really do the work of investigating? Man, what, what, is, what does my heart hold on to that thinks would save me or satisfy me? And are you willing to rip it out and say, here, Jesus, you can have it? On the night Jesus was betrayed by Judas, he took bread and broke it. And after he gave thanks, he said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup and he blessed it and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. You see, we know the cost of admission. The cost of admission was the broken body of the Son of God and the blood of the Son of God. And now we come to a time in our service where we will drink his blood and eat his flesh as a reminder of what it cost. As a reminder of what it cost to bring us home. And so if you belong to Jesus, so listen, here's some clear, I want to be very clear about these instructions. If you belong to Jesus and you have been baptized and received the covenant sign of baptism to enter into the family of God, not because baptism saves you, faith saves you, but baptism is the sign we receive to enter in. If you've believed in him and you belong to Jesus, here in a moment we're going to stand up and sing a song. And each corner of this room is uh, some juice and some crackers that we take to remember his broken body and blood poured out for us. And so as we sing, you get up on your own, go get it, bring it back and eat it on your own time. But if you're in this room and you have not received his grace, you do not belong to him. There is something else in your heart. There is something that is blocking Jesus because you have not believed, not trust, not placed your faith and trust in him. Or if you're kind of in that journey, you're kind of still wrestling through that, but you've not yet been baptized, hold off. This meal is not yet for you. Instead, come this morning and take hold of Christ. Take hold of Christ. I'm going to stand up here. While, while everybody moves around and eats. And if you're here this morning, you're like, you know what, I just don't know. Or I haven't been and I want to. I want to know Jesus. Come up here. Let me tell you how to, how, to, how to take hold of him and let him take hold of you. Let me do that with you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're a kid, man, we're so glad that you're, that you're here this morning. And maybe you would say to me, Brent, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But you've not yet been baptized. You've not yet walked through that with somebody else to confirm you really understand and you've really believed and you've really been born again and we've expressed that through baptism, then kids, please hold off. Parents, don't let them take it. Instead, show them that one day when they believe for themselves, this meal will be for them. When they enter the covenant community of faith, then it will be for them. Don't confuse them, making them think they're believers when they're not by letting them take this meal. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we gather to celebrate uh, you and all that you've done for us. Father, this morning there's some of us in this room who have not taken hold of Christ because our hearts have taken hold of something else. Uh, some idol, some hope, some dream in our hearts that we have thought would make us whole, make us satisfied, make us happy. God, would you expose whatever that thing is in our own hearts so, and give us the courage and the strength to rip it out. And help us to receive you in its place. God, would you give those people the courage this morning to come down front uh, as we take the Lord's Supper. And to say to me, uh, Brent, would you help me know what it means to, to, to make Jesus the Lord of my life. And I'll tell you, he will take you free of charge. He's paid the admission. His blood has been spilled.
And there's some people here this morning, and they believe you, they trust in you. But there are some things in their life that they're battling with. Some things that they believe ultimately will satisfy them. God, help them to, to rip those out. Father, there are people in our life that we share the gospel with and we want to and we just hear the excuses. We hear all the arguments. We hear all the things. Help us to cut through the noise with them. Help us to cut through the noise and to show them the real Jesus who asks everything of us but gives everything in return. Who asks of us more than we ever expected but gives us more treasure than we ever dared hope. So God, this morning, give us the courage to respond however we need to. And as we take this meal together, this gospel feast, let us be reminded that there was no sin too great, no sin too big, no failure too lofty that your blood does not cover fully and completely. No one in this room is a second-class citizen of the kingdom of God. We all come in through adoption and by blood, and we all stand on equal footing, forgiven at the cross of Christ. Let us remember that as we take this, Father. We love you in Christ, and we pray all people said, amen. As we sing, please feel free to move to one of these and take this feast.